0: How we doing, folks? Welcome back to Black Hoodie Alchemy. As always, I'm your host, Anthony Tyler. We're broadcasting here on the Fringe FM to start with. And, yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, we're getting back to our roots a little bit with this episode. In fact, uh, I feel like this might be one of the most ambitious episodes I've done yet. Um, we are going to dissect Carl Jung's answer to Job. Um, and before I talk more about that, uh, you know, some basic pleasantries. Go to the link tree to get any of your action to the YouTube or social medias or my website, divemind.net. Um, at that link tree or at the website, um, you could find, you know, my books. You can find all my other recent appearances. I was recently on the Mind Escape podcast talking with Mike over there about all sorts of different things. Um, And you can also, don't forget, you could check out that documentary he made him and his, uh, cousin Maurice, who both host the Mind Escape podcast. They did the uh, UFO documentary, As Within, So Without, from UFOs to DMT. And um, I was really honored to be a part of that. I think that's pretty much it for the moment. Um, As I've said, there will be a slew of guests coming on soon. I've got a whole bunch of different people on deck, and I just have to solidify that. And Um, you know, make it happen. And I'm waiting for my personal schedule in life to solidify just a little bit more. But this gives me the perfect opportunity to talk about Answer to Job because I think it is potentially Jung's greatest work. Maybe like Red Book aside, because that was sort of an entirely different beast. But in terms of his clinical, psychoanalytic, scholarly material, not to say the Red Book isn't, but I think anyone familiar with that will understand. And if you don't know what the Red Book is, it was the collected versions of his uh, most tumultuous existential crises um, that had to, to do with the discovery and investigation of his own inner mythology and, you know, some dreams that plagued him and emotional complexes that he was trying to wrap his head around. It's very involved. Um, answer to Job is more something akin to, you know, it's like man and his symbols or, um, you know, his, his work on UFOs, these, these more clear cut hundred plus page pieces that are often in bigger releases that have like several of these works. And in many cases it is referred to as the collected works of Carl Jung. And this is, um, I have, a uh, A copy, I have a physical copy of this book here that I'm going to be reading from quite a bit, and it says here in the physical copy, I'll have a link of that if anyone wants to see what I'm directly reading from uh, in the show notes, but this is from The Collected Works of Jung, Volume 11. This is part of the Bollingen Bollingen series, Uh, Princeton University Press. First copyright is 1958. This edition is 2011. So what is answer to Job? Um, I'm sure people checking out this show are casually familiar with philosophical, archetypal concepts, uh, basic biblical stories. Job spelt like job is the story of the man who became the, uh, the focus of a bet between God and the devil. And no disrespect, but, uh, I, I'm just calling it like I see it here. Um, and I'm calling it like the context is here's the thing um, if you're a dogmatic Christian, this is just not going to be the episode for you. in fact, I don't I'm if you're a dogmatic Christian listening to the show in general, I'm not trying to shy you away. you might find some interesting food for thought, I think, but this is going to be an unorthodox discussion. It's way, you know it's it's it, it's so complex uh the implications are so complex and as I was starting to say, if you're a layman Christian, the interpretation is going to be God put Job to the test as some sort of alchemical process, which, you know, the alchemical process can follow through in most contexts. Uh, but the real question is, you know, first of all, why does God feel the need to um, torture Job and take everything from him, uh, his family, his health, his his economic standing, his social standing, he becomes uh, an absolute um, reject who can't even really fend for himself at this point. And God's even rubbing it in, you know, really, really giving him a verbal smackdown. And it was all because the devil made God question whether or not Job would still be faithful to God if he was not so lucky. Um, this kind of flies in the face of pretty much everything Christianity tells us about Yahweh. But it doesn't fly in the face of uh, what the Bible tells us about Yahweh. Uh, And the more you read the Bible with just a practical sense at the forefront of your mind, the more you see that Yahweh is an extremely imperfect God. Um, You know, Jung himself was very much of a Gnostic sort of mindset. Um, And as we will go into here, there's a very radical concept, if you're only familiar with fundamental Christianity and and, and the dualism that... uh, is expounded in the exoteric version, the common public version. <clears throat> uh, it's going to sound quite radical to consider the fact that Yahweh, first off, is not likely the end all, be all God, you know, a creator force, source point, however you want to put it. Yahweh was not that. Yahweh was created by something else. He was not the source point. Yahweh is very imperfect and. Um, in many ways, petulant, childish, ignorant, human. It's very strange how human Yahweh is throughout the Bible. Um, and the real takeaway, as we will get into here, from the Book of Job and many others, but the Book of Job being such a an, an eloquent example. God, we are God's dream. In that sense, we are all fractal aspects of God. And what is God? God is the manifestation of reality itself. It's not a a man in the sky. it's not even a a physical being in its own right. uh if we look at the archetypal definitions, we don't even need to believe in God to understand that God is it is a fact of human consciousness uh regardless of how literal you want to take it. You think of the evolutionary historical scale, humans have been constantly intertwined with the notion of God, divinity, ideal states of existence. And not only that, but states of existence that can heal us, that can aid us. So whether or not you believe in God shouldn't really have any bearing on whether or not you think about God. Well, I think it's very important that we all understand our positions to God, whether we be atheist, um, agnostic, traditional, or unorthodox. The image of God, the archetype of God is something that stirs in all of our psyches because it's part of our adaptational process. And that's not where it ends in terms of archetypes um, and the case for their reality. So regardless of who you are, this conversation needs to be had. Um and if and and these stories shouldn't be taken literally either for that matter this is archetypal mythology what we're doing is studying the history of human consciousness that's truly what it is because they didn't have cognitive sciences back then they were doing this stuff they were writing these types of stories they were developing these types of systems heuristic systems through archetypes that they were most familiar with esoteric archetypes that have been handed down through traditions more often than not so and 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 since this is the historical record of the collective consciousness, it's extremely relevant to every single one of us. Not just Christianity either, but a comparative religion at large. But we aren't talking about Christianity today. We're talking about the story of Job. And what I'm gonna do here is I have a whole bunch of highlights. This is a very, very dense hundred pages, potentially the densest hundred pages I've ever read. I've I've read this book several times. I, re- I reread it recently, and there are aspects of this book that I will not be getting into because they are uh, – Jung does such a good job of uh, of unifying uh, several different concepts at once in order to make the larger point that is being made by the Book of Job. But he doesn't just get into the Book of Job here. He also gets into um, the Mother Mary a little bit and the the significance of the, uh, the, the Divine Feminine, and he also gets into the Book of Revelation a bit as well and the archetypal significance there. I'm going to focus actually on the story of Job here, and we will hear um, references to the other bits, but that's not going to be a focus though. And I'm just going to go through, I got many quotes. We'll see how long this takes. This could be a two-parter. I don't think it'll be that long though. But I just think that this is a fantastic, fantastic, quintessential work of Jung and not enough people talk about it. So I just really wanted to, and it's something I think about often as well. This work and the story of Job itself. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's fucking do it. I also wanted to note here in the foreword, it is noted by one of Jung's students, um, Marie Louise von Franz that Uh, In some of his uh, notes to her, some of his letters, um, that he would rewrite all of his books except Answer to Job. He would leave that one just as it stands, she said. So that's an interesting bit as well. As an author, um, I familiarized myself very much with the lament of the author and the release of their works. You know, people from Stephen King to Jung all had additional comments to their works to be added after. Because, I mean, a a work is a snapshot of your psyche in that time anyway. And you have to, you're going to be constantly growing as a human being. And it seems like, uh, in general, as an artist, if you're not willing to understand the place and time of art as you were doing it, but also having enough foresight to consider how the art might play out in the future, if you don't find that balance, it's going to drive you crazy. So, but, um, very interesting to note that, uh, answer to Job, despite its controversy, was not something that Jung ever felt like he needed to tinker with. Not one bit. The book of Job serves as a paradigm for a certain experience of God, which has a special significance for us today. These experiences come upon man from inside as uh as well as from outside. And it is useless to interpret them rationalistically and thus weaken them. Um it is far better to admit the affect and uh submit to its violence than try to escape it by all means of some sort of intellectual trick Tricks, or by emotional judgment values, we have to understand the savagery of some of these stories and the psychological components that they're trying to convey. Because if we are too afraid and we just gloss over the story, like trust God's will and no need to think of it any further, we're missing everything. And also disclaimer: this is an old book, you know, written in the 1950s. Everything is going to be written in the him, he, his context. Sorry. Uh, but you know, it, it was an, it was antiquated. don't Don't take it personally. So when it comes to job taking away everything and thus uh, seeking counsel with God to try and understand what he has done to deserve this, here's some more quotes: He cannot deny that he is up against a God who got, does not care a rap for any moral opinion and does not recognize any form of ethics as binding. And if that sounds controversial, just simply familiarize yourself with the Old Testament. This is just a matter of record. This is perhaps the greatest thing about Job, that faced with this difficulty, he does not doubt the unity of God. He clearly sees that God is at odds with himself, so totally at odds that he, Job, is quite certain of finding in God a helper and a quote-unquote advocate against God. As certain as he is of the evil in Yahweh, he is equally certain of the good. In a human being who renders us evil, we cannot expect at the same time to find a helper. Not usually, at least. Uh, but Yahweh is not a human being. He is both a persecutor and a helper in one. And the one aspect is as real as the other. Yahweh is not split, but is an antinomi, a totality of inner opposites. And this is the indispensable condition for his tremendous dynamism, his omniscience and omnipotence. Because of this knowledge, Job holds on to his intention of defending his ways to God's face, i.e. making his point of view clear to him, since uh, notwithstanding his wrath, Yahweh is also man's advocate against himself when man puts forth his complaint. One would be even more astonished at Job's knowledge of God if this were the first time one were hearing of Yahweh's amorality. His incalculable moods and devastating attacks of wrath had, however, been known from time immemorial. He had proven himself to be a jealous defender of morality and was specially sensitive in regard to justice. Hence, he had always to be praised as just, which it seemed was very important to him. Uh, Thanks to this circumstance or peculiarity of his, he had a distinct personality which differed from that of a more or less archaic king only in scope. His jealous and irritable nature, prying mistrustfully into the faithless hearts of men and exploring their secret thoughts compelled a personal relationship between him and man, who could not help but feel personally called by him. That was the essential difference between Yahweh and the all-ruling father Zeus. Who, in a benevolent and uh, somewhat detached manner, allowed the economy of the universe to roll along on its accustomed courses and punish only those who were disorderly? He did not moralize, but ruled purely instinctively. He did not demand anything from human beings than the sacrifices due to him. Uh, he did not want to do anything with human beings because he had no plans for them. Father Zeus is certainly a figure, but not a personality. Yahweh, on the other hand, was interested in man. Human beings were of a matter of first-rate importance to him. He needed them as they needed him, urgently and personally. Underline that. Gonna be a recurring theme. (laughs) Zeus too could throw thunderbolts about, but only at hopelessly disorderly individuals. Against mankind as a whole, he had no objections. But then uh, they did not interest him much at all. Yahweh, however, could get inordinately inordinately excited about man as a species and men as individuals if they did not behave as he desired or expected, without ever considering that in his omnipotence he could easily have created something better than these quote-unquote bad earthenware pots. Underline that, another recurring theme. Of course, one must not tax an archaic god with the requirements of modern ethics, for the people of early antiquity things were rather uh, different. In their gods, there were absolutely everything. They teemed with virtues and vices. Hence, they could be punished, put in chains, deceived, stirred up against one another without losing face, or at least not for long. Um, And the man of that epoch was so inured uh, to divine inconsistencies that he was not unduly perturbed when they happened. Very good point. With Yahweh, the case was different because from quite early on, the personal and moral tie began to play an important role in the religious relationship. In these circumstances, a breach of contract was bound to have the effect not only of a personal but of a moral injury. Yahweh fails to notice that he is being humored um, by the humans, just as little as he understands why he has continually to be praised as just. He makes pressing demands on his people to be praised and propitiated in every possible way for the obvious purpose of keeping him in a good temper at any price. That character thus revealed fits a personality who can only convince himself that he exists through his relation to an object. Such dependence on the object is absolute when the subject is totally lacking in self-reflection and therefore has no insight into himself. It is as if he existed only by reason of the fact that he has an object which assures him that he is really there. Sounds very human. If Yahweh, as we would expect of a sensible human being, were really conscious of himself, he would, in view of the true facts of the case, at least have put an end to um, the panegyrics of his justice. But he is too unconscious to be moral. Morality presupposes consciousness. By this, I do not mean either that Yahweh is imperfect or evil, like a Gnostic demiurge. Okay, even I called him imperfect, uh, but this is a good point to make. A very, very subtle but important point that even I forget sometimes. Um, but even if you disagree with it, it's worth considering because reading the text gives us this, it, it it doesn't shy away from this notion. It leans into it, the the biblical text itself. Um, so Yahweh is everything in its totality. Therefore, among other things, he is total justice and also its total opposite. At least this is the way he must be conceived if one is to form a unified picture of this character. We must only remember that we have what we have sketched is no more than an anthropomorphic picture, which is not even particularly easy to visualize. From the way the divine nature expresses itself, we can see that the individual qualities are not adequately related to one another, with the result that they fall apart into mutually contradictory states. Or acts, actually. For instance... Yahweh regrets having created human beings, although in his omniscience he must have known all along what would happen to them. In view of the undoubted frightfulness of divine wrath, and in an age when men still knew what they were talking about when they said fear of God, it was only to be expected that man's slight superiority should have remained unconscious. The powerful personality of Yahweh, who in addition to everything else lacked all biographical antecedents, Uh, had raised him above all the noumena of the Gentiles and had immunized him against the influence that for several centuries had been undermining the authority of the pagan gods. It was precisely the details of their mythological biography that had become their nemesis. For with this growing capacity for judgment, man had found these stories more and more incomprehensible and indecent. Yahweh, however, had no origin and no past, except his creation of the world, uh, with which all history began. The book of Job places this pious and faithful man so heavily afflicted by the Lord on a brightly lit stage where he presents his case to the eyes and ears of the world. It is amazing to see how easily Yahweh, quite without reason, had let himself be influenced by one of his sons, uh, Lucifer. Technically speaking, is his son, uh, as is everything. Essentially, uh, the the children of Yahweh, at least in this uh, in this dimension, or however you want to slice the frickin' pie. Um, he let himself be influenced by one of his sons by a by a doubting thought and made unsure of Job's faithfulness with his touchiness and suspiciousness. Uh, the mere possibility of doubt was enough to infuriate him and induce that peculiar double-faced behavior of which he had already given proof in the Garden of Eden when he pointed out the tree to the first parents and at the same time forbade them to eat it. In this way, uh, he precipitated the fall, which he apparently never intended. Similarly, his faithful... Th- his <laughs> faithful... Servant Job is now to be exposed to a rigorous moral test, quite gratuitously and to no purpose, although Yahweh is convinced of Job's faithfulness and constancy, and could moreover have assured himself beyond all doubt on this point had he taken counsel with his own omniscience. Why then is the experiment made at all, and a bet with the unscrupulous slanderer settled, without a stake, um, on the back of a powerless creature? It is indeed no edifying spectacle to see how quickly Yahweh abandons his faithful servant to the evil spirit and lets him fall without compunction or pity into the abyss of physical and moral suffering. From the human point of view, Yahweh's behavior is so revolting that one has to ask oneself whether there is not a deeper motive hidden behind it. Has Yahweh some secret resistance against Job? That would explain his yielding to Satan uh, but what is that uh what does man possess that god does not have because of his littleness his puniness and defenselessness against the almighty he possesses as we have already suggested a somewhat keener consciousness based on self-reflection he must in order to survive always be mindful of his impotence god has no need of this circumspection for nowhere does he come up against an insuperable obstacle um yeah that uh, would force him to hesitate and hence make him reflect on himself. Uh, Could a suspicion have grown up in God that man possesses an infinitely small, yet more concentrated light than he, Yahweh, possesses? A jealousy of that kind might perhaps explain his behavior. It would uh, be quite explicable if some such dim, barely understood deviation from the definition of a mere creature had aroused his divine suspicions. Too often already, these human beings had uh, not behaved in the prescribed manner. Even his trusty servant, Job, might have something up his sleeve. Hence Yahweh's surprising readiness to listen to Satan's insinuations against his better judgment. Part of the whole process of the, the, the religious metaphysics of Christianity is Yahweh being omniscient and omnipresent. Yet for some reason, it seems like more often than not deciding or forgetting that he even has those options. And as we shall see going forward further and further, it is the fact that human beings are the dreams of God it- itself. Um, it is that reason that God needs to interact with the experiment of the human being itself in a variety of ways, in a variety of traditions, but especially Christianity and the Abrahamic traditions, because God is going through the same process that we are alchemically, and God is becoming self aware more and more through his relationship to man, just as man is becoming more self aware through their relationship to god and i'm sorry i'm i'm gonna I just have to say man because I'm reading through this book and it's just gonna be embedded in my head, but generally speaking i say I say humankind, you know because I think that that's a progressive thing to do. I don't think there's anything censoring about that. I think it's uh, extremely reasonable to be saying humankind and humans now instead of man and mankind, but I'm also not going to edit history, you know. One must bear in mind here, the dark seeds that follow one another in quick succession. Robbery, murder, bodily injury, with premeditation, and denial of a fair trial. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, when you put it like that, uh, can you really argue with it? Uh, This is further exacerbated by the fact that Yahweh displays no compunction, remorse, or compassion, but only ruthlessness and brutality. The plea of unconsciousness is invalid, seeing that he flagrantly violates at least three of the commandments he himself gave out on Mount Sinai. Very interesting. You're not going to hear that at church. Job realizes God's inter- Inner antinomy, and in the light of this realization, his knowledge attains a divine numinosity. Uh, the possibility of this development lies, one must suppose, in man's godlikeness, quote unquote, uh, which one should certainly not look for in human morphology. Yahweh himself had guarded against this error by expressly forbidding the makings of images. Job, by his insistence on bringing his case before God, even without hope of a hearing. Uh, had stood on his ground, had stood his ground, and thus created the very obstacle that forced God to reveal his true nature. With this dramatic climax, Yahweh abruptly breaks off his cruel game of cat and mouse. But if anyone should expect that his wrath would now be turned against the slanderer, Satan, he would be severely disappointed. Yahweh does not think of bringing his mischief-making son uh into, um... Of his to account, nor does it ever occur to him to give Job at least the moral satisfaction of explaining his behavior. Instead, he comes riding along on the tempest of uh, his almightiness and thunders reproaches at half crushed human worms. <laughs> Underline this <clears throat> one of the most fascinating, complex l- sentences in this whole book here. Job is no more than the outward occasion. For an inward process of dialectic in God, we've already been touching on this concept a little bit of the image of God or uh, man, humans as the manifestation of God's dreams. But that is just put so clean cut you can take that to the bank psychologically. Uh you could read that to your therapist. It doesn't have to be spiritual. Job is no more than the outward occasion for an inward process of dialectic in God. I think this point is becoming more and more uh, elaborated. But why is still a huge question. Yahweh sees something in Job, which we would, um, in which Yahweh sees something in Job, which we would not ascribe to him, but to God. That is an equal power which causes him to bring out his whole power apparatus and parade it before his opponent. Yahweh projects onto Job a skeptic's face, which is hateful to him because it is his own and which gazes at him with an uncanny and critical eye. He is afraid of it, for only in face of something frightening does one let off a cannonade of references to one's own power, cleverness, courage, invincibility, etc. What has all this to do with Job, anyway? Is it worth the lion's wile to terrify the mouse? Yahweh cannot rest satisfied uh, with the first victorious round. Job has long since been knocked out, but the great antagonist whose phantom is projected onto the pitiable sufferer uh, still stands menacingly upright. Therefore, Yahweh raises his arm again. Um, some more quotes, like uh, biblical passages that he goes into, but I'm trying to be a, somewhat concise and read the most choice quotes here. Truly, Yahweh can do all things and permits himself all things without batting an eyelid. With brazen countenance, he can project his shadow side and remain unconscious at man's expense. He can boast of his superior power and enact laws which mean less than air to him. And you know what? Actually, I think this is a good time. This is as good as any a time to get into a commercial break. Um, we are reading Carl Jung's answer to Job in part. And don't forget, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler, and uh, stick with us. We'll be right back after this break.
1: Watch you say And now you've lost with you fly, warm respect, You cry, I can't pop, what? side
2: Dang old man, uh, dang old man Um, listen here y'all This is, uh, your your good old boyfriend Uh, uh, your good old friend that's a boy, not a boyfriend Uh, Tippy Pat's in here And, you know, from all them Black Hoodie Alchemy episodes And I'm just here to, uh, tell y'all about uh, some of the great commentaries that have been going on on this program with the good old Anthony Tyler. Um, we've done some great episodes uh, just like uh, Richard the uh, Abominable Snowman, Kuklinski, the Jewish locksmith known as Israel Keys, uh the Puerto Rican Batman known as Pedro Rodriguez Filho. And dang old Macaulay Culkin's gay murderous brother, Michael Alec. And and a whole lot more, y'all. So why don't you go on, tune in, and uh, check them Black Hooded Alchemy episodes out. Don't forget, I'm Timmy Patson of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. and I hope to dang old hear from y'all soon.
0: Salutations, Brotendo it is i as always muscle tornado um i don't have any dmt on hand so what i've been doing instead dude is uh while i'm waiting for more i've just been snorting a bunch of uh, lines of pixie sticks and you know um not not bad not bad so um <sighs> oh (coughs) Oh. (coughs) yeah um just uh some of you may have heard that uh um i recently lost an eyeball due to some um depressurization uh, from shipping myself in a crate from the everglades to finland but rest assured um i have a really cool eye patch now so it's working out well and I also, I've been doing some research on some obscure forums, and as I understand it now, um, depth perception doesn't really have anything to do with both eyeballs. It's just, uh, how strong your eyes are. So if you have poor depth perception, um, you just, you're just not good enough. You have weak eyeballs, like a beta male and if you train your eyes properly you can actually see in 14 dimensions (laughs) pretty sweet and i'm uh and you're probably wondering to yourself but muscle t uh can i do this (laughs) yeah definitely uh and, and luckily if you're wondering how to do this too you can get uh my my new instructional 14D eyeball strength training treatment um, now on Laserdisc that you can find on the website uh, tippypatson. uh forward slash dot, dot com uh, dot edu. Yeah. <laughs> Righteous. Alright. You take it easy out there, guys. And gals and, and hey, everybody else out there. You know. Um, I'm a cool guy and uh, Muscle Tornado is... Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, yeah. All right, I'm over it now. out. Uh. <laughs> Hello there, everybody. Hey, it's right, it's your friend, uh, S- uh Silverback Commando here. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, I-, I fucked up a little bit, everybody uh i did a little bit of a whoopsie here um it's been a good old time in it uh getting me dolphin glue and air gel i even told people um that they could uh get free dolphin grade lsd complimentary with their purchases of the dolphin glue and air gel but um wasn't able to follow through with any of it but um it was a nice gesture i know um uh, but thing is here here's the thing now um see, i, I, I put my LSDs in the same the same kinds of boxes that I, I ship out my packages in. And uh, recently, uh, uh, shipping out a package of the dolphin glue, uh, I accidentally shipped out all my LSDs. So, um, yeah, gonna need that back. Uh, I'm not prepared to uh, go sober from uh, the LSDs after so many years of being blitzed whew, Ah, oh, bloody hell. I have a good old time over here. It's your friend, Silverback Commando, um, you know, Dolphin Whisperer, uh, and, uh, you know. To Job. Answer to Job is quite a controversial but practical, pragmatic look at the Bible, the story of Job, but Yahweh's character as a whole throughout the Bible. And the big takeaways here are A, Yahweh is the antinomian, meaning that he is everything in totality, including uh, evil, essentially. What is evil? That's a bit of a different story. Um, you could go check out my episodes, The Image of God and The Image of the Devil. They're very esoteric. They're not straightforward. And you'll find interesting food for thought about like that expounds upon this conversation here in both of those episodes. But the fact of the matter is God is, I think the best way to put it, just as much our adversary as our savior. Because just by the definition, if he's everything, if he's the totality of everything, he has to be. Yet Christianity in its, uh, exoteric form today, uh, would not, that would not compute at all for any of them. This is just, we're just reading the Bible. I mean, we're not right now, but that's, you get it. Um, oh yeah. And B, the whole, uh, there's the, the same process that human beings are going through on, um, Navigating their unconscious mind as the reservoir connected to the collective consciousness and all the metaphysics that that entails, all the archetypes, the autonomous archetypes uh, that represent forces of nature that go beyond our understanding. The more we tap into that and understand our relationship to that, the closer to what people would call divinity we get and strengthening our, our relationship to a divinity, to a higher ideal and If we read the books of the Bible without all of this modern spiritual propaganda, we see that God, Yahweh, is going through the exact same process. Otherwise, there would be no need for any of this, not even creation, uh, certainly not all his engagements with creation. Again, just the fall of man itself uh, doesn't make any sense if uh, Yahweh is truly omniscient. There has to be an ignorance. A darkness on his part. He's either forgetting or he's choosing not to to seek counsel with his omniscience. Otherwise, he wouldn't be doing any of this. One can hardly avoid the impression that omniscience is gradually drawing near to a realization and is threatened with an insight that seems to be hedged about with fears of self-destruction. Fortunately, Job's final declaration is so formulated that one can assume with some clarity that for the protagonists, the incident is closed for good and all we the commenting chorus on this great tragedy which has never at any time lost its vitality do not feel quite like that to to take the most obvious thing what about the moral wrong job has suffered is man so worthless in god's eyes that not even um is is man so worthless in god's eyes uh This contradicts the fact that man is desired by Yahweh and that it obviously matters to him whether men speak quote-unquote right of him or not. He needs Job's loyalty, and it means so much to him that he shrinks at nothing in carrying out his test. This attitude attaches an almost divine importance to man, for what else is there in the whole wide world that could mean anything to one who has everything? Yahweh's divided attitude, which on the one hand tramples on human life and happiness without regard, and on the other hand uh, must have man for a partner, puts the latter in an impossible position. At one moment, Yahweh behaves as irrationally as a cataclysm. The next moment, he wants to be loved, honored, worshiped, and praised as just. He reacts irritably uh, to every word That has the faintest suggestion of criticism while he himself does not care a straw for his own moral code. If his actions happen to run counter to its statutes, this is, or at any rate could be uh, a moral satisfaction of the first order for Job, because through this declaration of man, in spite of his impotence, um, is set up as a judge over God himself. The, the very situation and the fact that Joe, Job took it on the chin, um, that in and of itself sets Job and humans up as judge over God himself. Anyone can see how unwittingly, uh, how, how Yahweh unwittingly raises Job by humiliating him in the dust. By doing so, he pronounces judgment on himself and gives man the moral satisfaction whose absence we found so painful in the book of Job the poet of this drama showed a masterly discretion in ringing down the curtain at the very moment when his hero gave unqualified recognition of the demiurge by prostrating himself at the defeat of uh, his divine majesty no other impression was permitted to remain an unusual scandal was blowing up in the realm of metaphysics which which supposedly with supposedly devastating consequences and nobody was ready uh, with a saving formula which would rescue the monotheistic conception of God from disaster. Even in those days, the critical intellect of a Greek could have easily seized on this new addition to Yahweh's biography and used it in his disfavor, so as to meet out of him the fate that had already overtaken the Greek gods. Uh, But a relativization of God was utterly unthinkable at the time, and remained so for the next 2,000 years. You see, the conscious mind of man sees correctly even when conscious reason is blind and impotent. The drama has been consummated for all eternity. Yahweh's dual nature has been revealed, and somebody or something has seen and registered this fact. Such a revelation, whether it reached man's consciousness or not, could not fail to have far-reaching consequences. Concerning more of Yahweh's relationship with humans... If it were true that he trusted Job perfectly, it would only be logical for Yahweh to defend him, unmask the malicious slanderer, and make him pay for his defamation of God's faithful servant. But Yahweh never thinks of it, not even after Job's innocence has been proven. Uh, We hear nothing of the rebuke of or disapproval of Satan. Therefore, one cannot doubt Yahweh's connivance. His readiness to deliver Job into Satan's murderous hands proves that he doubts Job precisely because he projects his own tendency to unfaithfulness upon a scapegoat. There is reason to suspect that he is about to loosen his matrimonial ties with Israel symbolically, uh, but hides this intention from himself. This vaguely suspected unfaithfulness causes him, with the help of Satan, to seek out the unfaithful one, and he infallibly picks on the most faithful of the lot, who is forthwith subjected to a grueling test. Yahweh has become unsure of his own faithfulness. Self-reflection becomes an imperative necessity, Um, and for for, for this, wisdom is needed. Yahweh has to remember his absolute knowledge, for if Job gains knowledge of God, then God must also... Learn to know himself, it could not be that Yahweh's dual nature should become public property and remain hidden hidden from himself alone. Whoever knows God has an effect on him. The failure of the attempt to corrupt Job has changed Yahweh's nature. Mysteriously following the same pattern, it was bound to happen that Adam's first son, like Satan, was an evildoer and murderer before the Lord, so that the prologue in heaven was repeated on earth. It can easily be surmised that this was the deeper reason why Yahweh gave special protection to the unsuccessful Cain after the murder of Abel, um, which he, he basically gave like a, a clause on Cain. He cursed him, but then he said anyone that would harm Cain would also uh have repercussions because he he sort of he wanted the the curse to go to his full extent in a way um so yeah and 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 he's right we do see these archetypes continuing to play out as God tries to understand his relationship to humans it is clear that uh this unavoidable dualism refused then as later to fit smoothly into the concept of monotheism the dualism found all throughout Christianity. <clears throat> Because it points to a metaphysical disunity. This split, as we know from history, had to be patched up again and again through the uh, centuries, concealed and denied. It had made itself from the very beginning in paradise uh, through a strange inconsequence which befell the creator or was put over on him. Instead of following his original program of letting man appear on the last day as the most intelligent being and the Lord of all creatures, he created the serpent who proved to be much more intelligent and more uh, conscious than Adam, and in addition, had been created before him. We can hardly suppose that Yahweh would have played such a trick on himself. It is far more likely that his son Satan had a hand in it. Um Yet <clears throat> yet there is still the question of uh, Yahweh's omniscience. He goes further to discuss does uh the idea of Lilith as Adam's first wife in Hebrew texts and not exactly uh canon in the uh, the Christian doctrine. Um and he 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 does some legwork uh very interestingly to weave the stories of Cain and Abel with the story of Job and the stories of uh Lilith and Eve as well as Adam um showing the the continuation of this dance of archetypes here. Here, as later, there is reason to suspect that no conclusions were ever drawn from omniscience. Yahweh did not consult his total knowledge and was accordingly surprised by the result. Uh, One can observe the same phenomenon in human beings, wherever in fact people uh, cannot deny themselves the pleasure of their emotions. It must be admitted that a fit of rage or a sulk has its secret attractions. Were that not so, most people would long since have acquired a little wisdom. With the Job drama, however, the situation undergoes a radical change. Here, Yahweh comes up against man who stands firm, who clings to his rights until he is compelled to give away uh, to give way to brute force. He has seen God's face and the unconscious split in his nature. God was now known, and this knowledge went on working not only in Yahweh but in man too. Thus, it was uh the men of the last few centuries before Christ um, who, at the gentle touch of the pre-existent Sophia, divine mother. Uh, compensate Yahweh and his attitude. And at the same time, complete wisdom, uh, complete the totality, uh, because wisdom is very feminine in nature. Um, and that's probably something that we won't get into that much here, but it does, it is gotten into a bit in this book and is something very alchemical that we have touched on before. And it, it won't be the last time. Just not now. A momentous change is imminent. God's desire to regenerate himself in the mystery of the heavenly nuptials as the chief, as the chief God of Egypt had done from time immemorial, the chief gods, um, wanting to become man. Then he's talking about the process of the Pharaoh archetypally, where the Pharaohs claim that they were gods incarnate. And this hints at the, um, the birth of Christ, which we will get into soon as well. Uh, but the real reason for God's becoming man is to be sought in his encounter with Job. And here we will consider the, uh, the birth of Christ and his life a bit more involving the relationship that has been put forth by the radical implications of the book of Job and, and these other stories that we've brought up in reference as well. Um, although the birth of Christ is an event that occurred, but once in history, you know, um, archetypally at the very least you know we're talking about the mythology um but there is you know it's still debated but there's plenty of evidence to suggest that christ was at least some sort of real person um the jury still uh hasn't made up their mind totally on that one yet so for the layman in these matters the identity of a non-temporal eternal event with a unique historical occurrence is something that is extremely difficult to conceive he must however Um, accustom himself to the idea that time is a relative concept and needs to be complemented by that of the simultaneous existence in the bardo or pleroma, pleroma. There we go. You know, the, the ether, as it were, of all historical processes. What exists in the pleroma as an eternal process appears in time as an aperiodic sequence. That is to say, it is repeated many times in an irregular pattern. To take but one example, Yahweh had one good son and one who was a failure. Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau correspond to this prototype. And so, in all ages and in all parts of the world, does the motif of the hostile brothers, which in innumerable modern variants still causes dissension, in families and keeps the psychotherapist busy just as many examples no less instructive could be found for the two women prefigured in eternity Uh, when these things occur as modern variants therefore they should not be regarded merely as personal episodes moods or chance idiosyncrasies in people but as fragments of the pleuromatic process itself which, are broken up into individual events occurring in time, is an essential component or aspect of the divine drama. Very eloquently put, not only the facets of investigating your own mythology, but um, some core components of chaos magic as well. It was only quite late that we realized, or rather are beginning to realize, that God is reality itself, and therefore, last but not least, also human. This realization is a millennial process very interesting there some such process can be observed in the curious change which comes over yahweh's behavior after the job episode there can be no doubt that he did not immediately become conscious of the moral defeat he had suffered at job's hands in his omniscience of course this fact had been known from all eternity And it is not unthinkable that the knowledge of it unconsciously brought him to the position of dealing so harshly with Job in order that he himself should become conscious of something through this conflict and thus gain new insight. Also sounds very human. The victory of the vanquished and oppressed is obvious. Job stands morally higher than Yahweh. In this respect, the creature has surpassed the Creator. As always, when an external event touches on some unconscious knowledge, this knowledge can reach consciousness. The event is recognized as a deja vu, and one remembers a pre-existent knowledge about it. Something of the kind must have happened to Yahweh. Job's superiority cannot be shrugged off. Hence a situation arises in which real reflection is needed. That is why Sophia steps in. She reinforces the much needed reflection and thus makes possible Yahweh's decision to become man. It is a decision fraught with consequences. He raises himself above his earlier primitive level of consciousness by indirectly acknowledging that the man Job is, that the man Job is morally superior to him and that therefore he has to catch up and become human himself in part. Not enough to just be a similar image or the same kind of image. Had he not taken this direction, um he would have found himself in flagrant opposition to his omniscience. Yahweh must become man precisely because he has done man a wrong. He, the guardian of justice, knows that every wrong must be expiated. And wisdom knows that moral law is above even him. Because his creature has surpassed him, he must regenerate himself. See, after all this dogpiling on Yahweh, because he's such an asshole in this, he is the antinomy. He is also good. To sum up so far, the immediate cause of the incarnation, uh, lies in Job's elevation, the incarnation of Christ, uh, and its purpose is the differentiation of Yahweh's consciousness. For this, a situation of extreme gravity was needed, uh, without which no higher level of consciousness could be reached. And he also, um, it, it talks about, I'm not sure if we'll really get into it here particularly, uh, I might, I might just skip over that but he also talks about how the christian concept of the holy spirit seems to be the continuation of this principle of this very principle of yahweh's need to in a sense become man so that he may continue to develop reality itself through uh the wisdom of his experiments besides his love of mankind a certain irrescapability is noticeable in christ's character um, there is no evidence that Christ ever wondered about himself or that he ever confronted himself. To this rule, there is only one significant exception, the despairing cry from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here he is, uh, here his human nature attains divinity. At that moment, God experiences what it means to be a mortal man and drinks to the dregs what he made his faithful servant Job suffer. Here is given the answer to Job, and clearly the supreme moment is as divine as it is human, as eschatological as it is psychological. And that, and at this moment too, where one can feel the human being so absolutely, the divine myth is present in full force, and both mean one and the same thing. How then can one possibly demythologize the figure of Christ? A rationalistic attempt of that sort would soak all the mystery out of his personality and Uh, what remained would be no longer, would no longer be the birth of a tragic fate of a God in time, but historically speaking, a badly authenticated religious teacher, a Jewish reformer who was Hellenistically interpreted and misunderstood, a kind of Pythagoras, maybe, or if you like, a Buddha or Muhammad, but certainly not a son of God or God incarnate. But myth is not fiction. It consists of facts that are continually repeated and can be observed over and over again. It is something that happens to man and men have mythical fates just as much as the Greek heroes do. The fact that the life of Christ is largely myth does absolutely nothing to disprove its factual truth. Quite the contrary. I would even go so far as to say that the mythical character of a life is just what expresses its universal human validity. The life of Christ is just what it had to be if um, if it is the life of a God and a man at the same time, it is a symbolum, a bringing together of heterogeneous natures, <laughs> uh, rather as if Job and Yahweh were combined in a single personality. Yahweh's intention to become man, which resulted from his collision with Job, is fulfilled in Christ's life and suffering and, 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 uh, carried out further by the Holy Ghost. Another quote that's very interesting, that seems like a common sense, Occam's razor here. There can be no doubt that man's importance uh, is enormously enhanced if God himself designs to become one. As with the result of the partial neutralization of Satan, Yahweh identifies with his light aspect and becomes the good God and loving father. He has not lost his wrath and can still mete out punishment, but he does it with justice. Cases like the Job tragedy are apparently no longer expected. He's talking about this sort of uh, New Testament transition. Um, he proves himself benevolent and gracious. He shows mercy to the sinful children of men and is defined as love itself. But although Christ has complete uh, confidence in his father and even feels at one with him, he cannot help inserting the cautious petition and warning into the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God is asked not to entice us outright into doing evil, but rather to deliver us from it. The possibility that Yahweh, in spite of all the precautionary measures and in spite of his express intention to become, um, just, uh, might yet revert to his former ways. It, uh, oh, this sentence is uh, running away from me here. The possibility that Yahweh might yet revert to his former ways is not so remote that one need not keep one eye, uh, open for it. At any rate, Christ considers it appropriate to remind his Father of his destructive inclinations towards mankind and to beg him to desist uh, desist from them. Christ reconciles God with man and delivers him from the divine wrath, which hangs over him like doom, and from eternal damnation. It is obvious that such ideas still picture God the Father as the dangerous Yahweh who has to be propitiated. The agonizing death of his Son is supposed to give him satisfaction for an affront he has suffered and for this moral injury, he would be inclined to take a ver- uh, terrible vengeance. Once more, we are appalled by the incongruous attitude of the world creator towards his creatures, um, who to his chagrin never behave accordingly to his expectations. It is as if someone started a bacterial culture which turned out to be a failure. He might curse his luck, but he would never seek the reason for the failure in the basili, or bacilli, and want to punish them morally for it. Rather, he would select a more suitable culture medium. Yahweh's behavior towards his creatures contradicts all the requirements of so-called divine reason whose possession is supposed to distinguish men from animals. Moreover, a bacteriologist might make a mistake in his choice of a culture medium, for he is only human. But God, in his omniscience, would never make mistakes if he only consulted with it. He has equipped uh, his human creatures with a modicum of consciousness and a corresponding degree of free will. But he must also know that by doing so, he leads them into the temptation of falling dangerously or falling into a dangerous independence. That would be not too great a risk if man had to do with a creator who was only kind and good. But Yahweh is forgetting his son, Satan, to whose wiles even he occasionally succumbs. It cannot be denied that the great symbol of the Christian faith, the cross, upon which hangs the suffering figure of the Redeemer, has been emphatically held up before the eyes of Christians for nearly 2,000 years. This picture is completed by two thieves, one of whom goes down to hell, the other into paradise. One could hardly imagine a better representation of the oppositeness of the central Christian symbol. Why this inevitable product of Christian psychology should should signify redemption is difficult to see except that the conscious recognition of opposites painful though it may be at the moment does bring with it a definite feeling of deliverance Uh, so true it is on the one hand a deliverance from the distressing state of dull and helpless unconsciousness and on the other hand a growing awareness of god's oppositeness in which man can participate if he does not shrink from being wounded by the dividing sword which is christ Only through the most extreme and most menacing conflict does the Christian experience deliverance into divinity, always provided that he does not break, but accepts the burden of being marked out by God. The traditional view of uh, Christ's work of redemption reflects a one-sided way of thinking, no matter whether we regard that one-sidedness as purely human or as willed by God. The other view, which regards the atonement not as the payment of a human debt to God, but as reparation for a wrong done by God to man has been briefly outlined. This view seems to me to be better suited to the power situation as it actually exists. The sheep can stir up mud in the wolf's drinking water, but can do him no other harm. So also, the creature can uh, disappoint the creator, but it is scarcely credible that he can do him a painful wrong. That lies only on the power of the creator with respect to the powerless creature. On this view, a wrong is imputed to God, but it is certainly no worse than what had already been imputed to him, if one assumes that it was necessary to torture the son to death on the cross merely in order to appease the father's wrath. What kind of father is it who would have his son, who, who would rather his son were slaughtered than forgive his ill-advised creatures who had been corrupted by his precious Satan? Um, what is supposed to be demonstrated by this gruesome, archaic sacrifice of the son? God's love, perhaps, or his implacability. It is very understandable, therefore, that a naive mind is apt to run away from such questions. Christ proves to be a mediator in two ways. He helps men against God and assuages the fear which man feels towards this being. He holds an important position midway between the two extremes, man and God, which are so difficult to unite. Uh, Clearly, the focus of the divine drama shifts to the mediating God-man. He is lacking neither in humanity nor in divinity, and for this reason, he was uh, long ago characterized by totality symbols, because he was understood to be all-embracing and to unite all opposites. And Christ is um, recognized as the Pisces, the, uh, the opposite striving to unite themselves, you know, this all fish symbolism. The future indwelling of the Holy Ghost in man amounts to a t- continuing incarnation of God. Christ as the begotten Son of God and pre-existing mediator is a firstborn and a divine paradigm which will be followed by further incarnations of the Holy Ghost in the empirical man. It is highly unlikely that the bond between God and man was broken with the death, with the death of Christ. On the contrary, the continuity of this bond is stressed again and again and is further confirmed by the sending of, uh, the continuity of this bond. The continuity of this bond is stressed again and again. But the closer this bond becomes, the closer uh, becomes the danger of a collision with evil. Evil is by no means fettered, even though its days are numbered. God still hesitates to use force against Satan. Presumably, he still does not know how much of his own dark side favors the evil angel, as since he was once a favorite angel. I have I have tried to set forth above the inescapable conclusions which must, I believe, be reached if one looks at tradition with critical common sense. If, in this wise, uh, one is confronted with a paradoxical idea of God, and if, as a religious person, one considers at the time the full extent of the problem, one finds oneself in the situation of the author of Revelation, um, who we might suppose was a convinced Christian. What is the relationship of this man to God? How does he endure the intolerable contradiction in the nature of deity? Um, although we know nothing of his conscious decision, we believe we may find some clue in the vision, in uh, in the in the many visions throughout revelations. Won't get into that too much here, but suffice it to say, Jung, like I said, I've said before, goes into revelation to expound upon the recurring theme that's seen through Job and thus through Christ, and it is the idea of God's antinomy nature and his need to study that antinomy nature through his uh, investigations and experiences with humanity. The paradoxical nature of God has a like effect on man. It tears him asunder into opposites and delivers him over to a seemingly insoluble conflict. What happens in such a condition? Here we must let psychology speak, for psychology represents the sum of all observations and insights it has gained from the empirical study of severe states of conflict. There are, for example, conflicts of duty no one knows how to solve. Consciousness only knows so much. The doctor therefore advises his patient to wait and see whether the unconscious will not produce a dream which proposes an irrational and therefore unexpected third thing as a solution. As experience shows, symbols of a reconciling and unitive nature do in fact turn up in dreams, the most frequent being the motif, motif of the child hero and the squaring of the circle signifying the union of opposites. Uh, those two have no access to these specially those who have no access to these specially medical experiences can derive practical instructions from fairy tales and particularly from alchemy, the real subject of hermetic philosophy um alchemy characterizes its child on the one hand as the stone and on the other hand as the homunculus uh this is precisely the figure we meet in the apocalypse as the son of the sun woman um which was repeated in various forms by the alchemists but we're not going to get into that too much uh we're trying to tiptoe around revelation here because that's a whole whole other thing and i'm surprised it's really it's Kind of mind boggling how much different subject matter, uh, Jung was able to talk about in 108 pages of, it was, it's just such a dense breakneck pace, but it's, it's a masterpiece. Yahweh's decision to become man is a symbol of development, this alchemical union of opposites, um, that had to supervene when man becomes conscious of the sort of God image he is confronted with. God acts out of the unconscious of man and forces him to harmonize and unite the opposing influences to which his mind is exposed from the unconsciousness uh, from the unconscious the unconscious wants both to divide and to unite in his striving for unity therefore man may always count on the help of a metaphysical advocate as job clearly recognized the unconscious wants to flow into consciousness in order to reach the light but at the same time it continually thwarts itself because it would rather remain unconscious that is to say God wants to become man, but not quite. The conflict in his nature is so great that the incarnation can only be brought uh, by an expiatory self sacrifice offered up to the wrath of God's dark side. Wow, underline that shit. I'll read that. Should I read that again? The unconscious wants to flow into consciousness in order to reach the light, but at the same time, it continually thwarts itself because it would rather remain unconscious. That is to say, God wants to become man but not quite. The conflict in his nature is so great that the incarnation can only be brought by an expiatory self-sacrifice offered up to the wrath of God's dark side. As a result of the spiritual differentiation fostered by the Reformation and the growth of the sciences in particular, um, which were originally taught by the fallen angels as described in the book of Enoch, um, which was eventually taken out, it was made not canon in the Bible. Uh, There is already a considerable admixture of darkness in us, so that, compared with the purity of the earthly Christian saints, uh, we do not show up in a very favorable light. Our comparative blackness naturally does not help us a bit. Uh, Black is in, like, black magic. Uh, Though it mitigates the impact of evil forces, it makes us more vulnerable and less capable of resisting them. We therefore need more light more goodness and moral strength, and must wash off as much of the obnoxious blackness as possible. Black magicness. Um, Otherwise, we shall not be able to assimilate the dark god who also wants to become man and at the same time endure him without perishing. For this, all Christian virtues are needed and something else besides. And something else besides, for the problem is not only moral. We also need the wisdom that Job was seeking. But at that time, she was still hidden in Yahweh. Or rather, she was not yet remembered by him. The higher and complete man is begotten by the unknown father and born from wisdom. That is he who uh, represents our totality, which transcends consciousness. It was this boy into whom Faust had to change this alchemical new birth, um, abandoning his inflated one sidedness for which, uh, which saw the devil only outside. Christ's except ye become as little children. Prefigures this change, for in them, the opposite lie close together. The opposites lie close together. But what is meant is the boy who is born from the maturity of the adult man and not the unconscious child we would like to remain. Looking ahead, Christ also hinted, as I mentioned before, at the mortality of evil. Strangely, suddenly, as if it did not belong there, the sun woman, uh, uh, with her child appears in the stream of apocalyptic visions. In Revelation. He belongs to another future world. Hence, like the Jewish Messiah, the child is caught up uh, to God, and his mother must stay for a long time hidden in the wilderness, where she is nourished by God. For the immediate and urgent problem in those days was not the union of opposites, not yet, which lay in the future, but the incarnation of the light and good, the subjugation, uh, the lust of this world, and the consolidation against the advent of the you know, the symbolic archetypal antichrist and, and all the last days type stuff. All right, we're getting closer to the end here, rounding home base a little bit. Everything now depends on man. Immense power of destruction is given into his hand, and the question is whether he can resist the will to use it and can temper his will with the spirit of love and wisdom. He will hardly be capable of doing so on his unaided resources. He needs the help of an advocate in heaven. That is of the child who is caught, who, yeah, who is caught up to God and who brings the healing and making whole of the hitherto fragmentary man. Whatever man's wholeness or the self may mean per se, empirically, it is an image of the goal of life spontaneously produced by the unconscious, irrespective of the wishes and fears of the conscious mind. It stands for the goal of the total human, for the realization of uh, wholeness and individuality with or without the consent of will. The dynamic of this process is instinct, which ensures that everything which belongs to an individual's life shall enter into it, whether he consents to it or not, or is conscious of what is happening to him or not. Uh, Obviously, it makes a great deal of difference subjectively whether he knows what he is living out whether he understands what he is doing, and whether he accepts responsibility for what he proposes to do or has done. The difference between conscious realization and the lack of it has been roundly formulated in the saying of Christ already quoted, Man, if indeed thou knowest what thou dost, thou art blessed. But if thou knowest not, thou art cursed and a transgressor of the law. Before the bar of nature and fate, unconsciousness is never accepted as an excuse. On the contrary, there are very severe penalties for it. Hence, all unconscious nature longs for the light of consciousness while frantically struggling against it at the same time. The conscious realization of what is hidden and kept certainly, uh, kept secret certainly confronts us with an insoluble conflict. At least, this is how it appears to the conscious mind. But the symbols that rise up out of the unconscious in dreams show it rather as a confrontation of opposites, and the images of the goal represent their successful reconciliation. Something empirically uh, demonstrable comes to our aid from the depths of our unconscious nature. It is the task of the conscious mind to understand these hints. If this does not happen, the process of individuation will nevertheless continue. The only difference is what we be, uh is that we become its victims and are dragged along by fate towards the inescapable goal which we might have reached walking upright if we had only taken the trouble and been patient enough to understand in time the meaning of the new uh noumena that cross our path since the apocalypse uh which also means revelation as we know um we now know again that God is not only to be loved but also to be feared He fills us with evil as well as good, otherwise he would not need to be feared. And because he wants to become man, the uniting of his antinomy uh, must take place in man. This involves man in a new responsibility. He can no longer wriggle out of it on the plea of his littleness and nothingness, for the dark god has slipped the atom bomb and the chemical weapons into his hands and given him the power to empty out the apocalyptic vials of wrath on his own fellow creatures. Since he has been granted an almost godlike power, he can no longer remain blind and unconscious. He must know something of God's nature and of metaphysical processes if he is to understand himself and thereby achieve gnosis of the divine. This reminds me of um, Oppenheimer's quote that everyone is so familiar with now that comes from the Bhagavad Gita, I am become death destroyer of worlds. The failure to understand that God has eternally wanted us to become man, and for that purpose continually incarnates through the Holy Ghost in the temporal sphere, is an alarming symptom, Jung goes on to say. It is obviously out of touch with the tremendous archetypal happenings in the psyche of the individual and the masses, and with the symbols which are intended to compensate the truly apocalyptic world situation today. It seems to have succumbed to a species of rationalistic historicism and to have lost any understanding of the Holy Ghost who works in the hidden places of the soul. It can therefore neither understand nor admit a further revelation of the divine drama. I have been asked often, uh, so often whether I believe in the existence of God or not that I am somewhat concerned lest I be taken for an adherent of psychologism far more commonly than I suspect. What most people overlook or seem unable to understand is the fact that I regard the psyche as real. They believe only in physical facts and must consequently come to the conclusion that either the uranium itself or the laboratory equipment created the atom bomb. uh, That is no less absurd than the assumption that a non-real psyche is responsible for it. God is an obvious psychic and non-physical fact, a fact that can be established psychically but not physically, i.e. psychologically. Um, equally, these people have uh, still not got it into their heads that the psychology of religion falls into two categories, which must, must be sharply distinguished from one another. Firstly, the psychology of the religious person, and secondly, the psychology of the religion proper, or the contents of the religion. And what he's talking about here, Jung was very inspired by Goethe or Gauthier, uh, who wrote Faust, or, or did a re- the most popular rendition of Faust, which is an alchemical text, very heavy, and very much deals with the Book of Job. Uh, in fact, I've said in other places that the story of Faust is very much the inverted version of the Book of Job, where there is a bet between God and Mephistopheles, who represents the Lucifer-Satan archetype, about um, what if they gave Faust limitless power? You know, uh, would he still be able to find God with limitless power and the ability to just corrupt himself to no end? And it's a very fascinating book. And, um, what Jung touched on in that last bit of quotation there is what we talked about in the episode, Gertie and Gertie and science. There's so many different ways you could pronounce that guy's name. The idea that empirical, empirical science Science as we know it today doesn't have to be changed, it just has to be um, rectified to include the dynamic of the human psyche. And if you want more on that, you can go check out that episode. The metaphysical process is known to the psychology of the unconscious as the individuation process. Insofar as this process, as a rule, runs its course unconsciously, as it has from time immemorial, it means no more than that the acorn becomes an oak. The calf a cow, the child an adult. But if the individuation process is made conscious, consciousness must confront the unconscious and a balance between the opposites must be found. As this is not possible through logic, one is dependent on symbols which make the irrational union of opposites possible. They are produced spontaneously by the unconscious and are amplified by the conscious mind. The central symbols of this process describe the self, which is man's totality, consisting on the one hand, Of that which is conscious to him, and on the other hand, of the contents of the unconscious. The difference between the natural individuation process, which runs its course unconsciously, and the one which is consciously realized, as I talk about it heavily in my book, Dive Manual, um, the difference is tremendous. Um, In the first case, consciousness nowhere intervenes. The end remains as dark as the beginning. In the second case, so much darkness comes to light that the personality is permeated with light and consciousness necessarily gains in scope and insight the encounter between consciousness and con it, it, oh and it's either that or or your ruin you know so high stakes psychologically speaking um the encounter between consciousness and unconscious has to ensure that the light which shines in the darkness is not only comprehended by the darkness but comprehends it it is the alpha and omega of the process the mediator and intermedius it has a thousand names says the alchemists meaning that the source from which the individuation process rises and the goals towards which it named which it aims is nameless and ineffable it is only through the psyche that we can establish that god acts upon us but we are unable to distinguish whether these actions emanate from god or from the unconscious we cannot tell whether God and the unconscious are two different entities. both are borderline concept, concepts of transcendental contents. But empirically, it can be established with a sufficient degree of probability that there is an unconscious that there is in the unconscious an archetype of wholeness which manifests itself spontaneously in dreams, art, etc, and uh, has a tendency independent of the conscious will to relate other archetypes to this center. Underline that. Faith is certainly right when it impresses on man's mind and heart how infinitely far away and inaccessible God is, but it also teaches his nearness, his immediate presence, and it is just this nearness which has to be empirically real if it is not to lose all significance. Only that which acts upon me do I recognize as real and actual, but that which has no effect upon me might as well not exist. The religious needs long The religious need longs for wholeness and therefore lays hold of the images of wholeness offered by the unconscious which independently of the conscious mind rise up from the depths of our psychic nature it will probably have become clear to the reader that the account i have given of the development of symbolic entities corresponds to a process of differentiation of human consciousness but since as i showed in the introduction the archetypes in question are not mere objects of the mind but are also autonomous factors, i.e. living subjects. The differentiation of consciousness can be understood as the effect of the intervention of transcendentally conditioned dynamisms. And when he says living beings, the note is autonomous. That means self-engaged, like self-enacting. The idea of sentience, the whole I am principle, is a bit of a different story. And that is also something I've talked about elsewhere. Since in our experience there are no psychic conditions which could be observed through introspection outside the human being, the behavior of the archetypes cannot be investigated at all without the interaction of the observing consciousness. So it's not just archetypes moving through us, it's a dual process. Therefore, the question as to whether the process is initiated by consciousness or by the archetype can never be fully answered, unless... In contradiction to experience, one either robbed the archetype of its autonomy or degraded consciousness to a mere machine. We find ourselves in best agreement with psychological experience if we concede to the archetype a definite measure of independence and to consciousness a degree of creative freedom proportionate to its scope. There then arises that reciprocal action between two relatively autonomous factors which compels us when describing and explaining the processes to represent sometimes the one and sometimes the other factor as the acting subject, even when God becomes man. The Christian solution has hitherto avoided this difficulty by recognizing Christ as the one and only God-man, but the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, the third divine person in man, brings about a Christian of many. And the question then arises whether these many are all complete Godmen. Such a transformation would lead to insufferable collisions between them, to say nothing of the unavoidable inflation to which the ordinary mortal, who is not freed from original sin, would instantly succumb. In these circumstances, it is well to remind ourselves of St. Paul in his split consciousness. On one side, he felt that he was the apostle directly called and enlightened by God, and on the other side, a sinful man who could not pluck out the thorn in his flesh and, uh, rid himself of the satanic angel who plagued him. That is to say, even the enlightened person remains what he is and is even, uh, and is never more than his own limited ego before the one who dwells within him, whose form has no knowable boundaries, who encompasses him on all sides, fathomless as the abysms of the earth and vast as the sky. And, you know, that's it for now, folks. Um, I would summarize that a bit more, but I think Jung did a great job himself. Uh, There are certainly more to digest when it comes to the Bible and the book of Job and all that was laid out here. But I think I'll let it be for now. You know, don't feel bad if you didn't understand everything in this episode. I don't understand everything in this episode. No one does. Not even Jung. We're all just kind of stabbing at what we can here. And... Jung was a unique mind that gave a lot more thought to it than the average person. And th- he, he, he gave it the importance that a theologian would give it. And, and, and he kept it empirical and practical. And he kept Occam's razor at his side as a scientist would. And I think, um, you know, not only does that highlight on concepts like a Gautier in science, it highlights on things like inner mythology that we've talked about, the alchemical process itself um this is a continuation of of ideas expressed in the uh, episodes the images of Uh god and the devil and this is one of my all time favorite works of jung i think it is really unsung and underrated and i just really wanted to do uh this uh and and put it out there cuz it's something that i think about often i've gone back to this book quite a bit and you know i'm glad i could just put it out there i hope it gives people food for thought and you know it, I hope uh, people didn't really take this particularly combative towards Christianity. It really isn't. It's just an honest search for the truth. You know, and I can't claim to say that I know all the truths, but I certainly do think that, um, Christians and atheists alike, people in general, the, uh, in the West, especially where we're so indoctrinated with this idea today and historically of, uh, this Abrahamic metaphysics, I think we would all do well to, um, look at it with fresh eyes like Jung did in answer to Job. So that was a hell of an answer to Job and yeah, well put. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with some guests here in the near future. Don't forget, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler. Y'all take it easy out there.
1: Falling on a deaf year Dialing, calling, dial tones, no rest here Time brings you in a standing Flourish, your outer planning Ages, wise, courage, dead, fear Raise the blind curtains Find certain stress clear Maintain through stress here In the mind, lace collar, blind Locked in brain cells I paint hell Paint heaven, spray can Bass yelling Open hands, empty to the eyes, face Fire in the sky, you can taste the wind. Hanging in, hanging off of dead coins and change. Noise through veins, core of the sun strums the rays. I spit my hunger pains, still on the plantation with a wick to blaze. Water can't slide, at the fire that's raised in a bunker chained. This out of sanity, omit vicious insanity. I'm neither. Receive my word like a believer. For eons, right? Way before your sleepless cities and your neon nights, I was beyond life within the ether. And I brought you Peon's light and lit the world Inspire visions beyond sight My third eye, trace the star maps I'll be home soon, drop shrooms Lace a tune with the man in the moon Beyond the consciousness, panic consume panic ensues when my words prove the legends of Atlantis was true I see devils, make it rain And raise the sea levels, on the beat the Water flood the streets where the beast Heckles, peace settles, never last Heaven we never have, This life and endless struggle, war within the better half Don't try to run, i am Sniper bullet wrapped inside a drum. When you nod your head, you're dead. Your soul will burn inside the song. forever. Cursed to be pathetic, never drop a clever verse. Never find the words to say. Walk the earth on end to search your wordplay. Worthless, your life has no purpose. Beneath the surface, the real art defeat the serpents. Escape the globe, ignite all mics and burn the fat away. Stay killing all the week off From Saturday to Saturday. For these bitches I see It's the tall muscles that build a stronger frame and the discipline. Stop the rain, time to manifest solutions deep inside my brain.